Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. We are, uh, in, excuse me, in between uh, series this morning, and so today we are going to celebrate, and it is a celebration, the Lord's Supper. And so as you came in this morning, you should have picked up one of these. If you did not, I'm going to ask you to raise your hand now, not wait till later, and we'll have some guys um, get them down to you. Aaron, you have no excuse, um, but thank you for, I see that hand, thank you for raising that hand, but... Uh, So if you did not get one of these, please go ahead and make sure you get that now so we don't have to uh, interrupt later uh, when we come to this. And while uh, you're getting those, be turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where we will discover some instructions for the very thing we are doing this morning. As you know, meals have always been uh, not just about food. It certainly is about food. There is some physical nourishment involved, of course, but it has always been much more than just physical nourishment. It is about community, getting together with other people to hear about their lives as we share a meal together. And that's why nightly or now weekly family meals were so important and continue to be so for those of us who still have them. A chance to turn off the TV, to disengage from social media, to sit around the table with those who you are closest with and talk about life. Perhaps that's one reason why the family in America is struggling so mightily to stay together. Because in large measure, these family meals have been forsaken. It takes too much effort to cook, too much time to sit down and eat, and we have other things that we deem to be more important. And so the modern meal is largely nowadays consumed on the go, as quickly as we can possibly get it and consume it, often not even at home, but in the car headed to another appointment. I well remember the first time Tracy and I, this was prior to us being married, but we were traveling somewhere, probably back to see my family, but we were on a road trip, and I casually mentioned to her that we were going to stop and grab something to eat and eat it in the car. That was just the way we did it in my family, and I assumed that's what everybody else did. She laughed. She thought I was joking. And I asked her why she laughed, and she said, well, we always stopped in my family. We always stopped. And sat down somewhere and ate. And I was like, well, that's not the way it's going to be here because we want to keep making good time. You know, it's all about the time that you're making on the road trip. And so why would I sit in a restaurant when I can sit in the car and eat and get some miles under me at the same time? But no longer is it just about road trips. It's an everyday experience for many, grabbing something on the go, either from home or in a drive-through while getting to where we want to be. And in that drive-thru, it better be real fast food. Because if we have to wait more than five minutes in that drive-thru, someone is going to hear about it, and someone is going to be angry. Biblical meals were not fast food affairs. They were social and relational events that took time. And that is still the case in many cultures around the world today. 
We had a, when we went to Central Asia, that's a culture where meals are significantly more than about food. But we had a breakfast meeting one morning with one of the leaders of the church, and we were meeting him and his wife at a restaurant at 10 in the morning, which in my opinion was way too late for breakfast to begin with. But nevertheless, I didn't set the schedule. And so we were meeting him at 10 o'clock, and we were told before we went that this might take a while. And it did. We sat in the restaurant for three hours over breakfast, and then he invited us back to his mother's house to meet her. And so by the time it was all over, this breakfast meeting had taken five hours of our day. Now, I'm not complaining. I'm just giving you an example of how a meal can last much longer because it's not just about food. It's about people. And that was especially true in biblical days when it came to their annual celebrations, those events on the Hebrew calendar that marked something in their history that surrounded a meal. These were times of great rejoicing, times of celebration as people came together around the table, much like our Thanksgiving meal or our Christmas together as a family, or maybe to a lesser extent what some of you might be doing tomorrow around the Labor Day holiday, getting together with family and grilling out. The Passover was certainly a high water mark annually, bringing the people together to celebrate God's great deliverance from their bondage in Egypt. And it included the Passover meal. Jesus celebrated that last Passover meal with his disciples on that fateful week in Jerusalem, just hours or a day or so before he would be arrested and tried and ultimately crucified. And in that last Passover meal, he radically transformed the meaning of it, giving it new meaning to his disciples and to us. And that is what we've gathered to celebrate this morning. Not our deliverance from Egypt, for we are not Jews, but we gather to celebrate our deliverance from sin, our deliverance from death, and all that that entails. The institution of the Lord's Supper is found in the gospel records. But in 1 Corinthians 11, we have some instructions about the Lord's Supper, and these instructions primarily come from the fact that the Lord's Supper was being abused in this particular church. And so we want to learn about this celebration this morning, beginning in verse 17 of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Paul writes, but in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you, in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance 
of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. So let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. This is indeed a supper of celebration, and we are going to see at least four things that we have reason to celebrate this morning. The first is what I'm calling a celebration of unity, and from that, we get it in this text in, in the opposite manner. In other words, the church in Corinth was not a unified church. And that is one of the major reasons why Paul is giving them instructions. And from their mistakes, we need to learn the reality that this supper is a celebration of unity. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, you know that it was a divided congregation. This is in all likelihood the most troubled church to whom Paul wrote And one of the major struggles they had was their lack of unity. They were divided over many things. They were troubled over many different issues. There were leadership issues. That is, they they weren't sure who to follow. And so they were divided as to who their real spiritual leader was to be. Was it going to be Peter or Paul, perhaps Apollos, or maybe even Christ himself? They were divided over sexual immorality within the church, allowing people within the congregation to live in open and defiant sin and doing nothing about it. They were divided in court, taking their differences rather than to the leadership of the church. They were taking their differences to secular judges and allowing them to decide for them. They were divided over social lines, allowing social distinctions to remain even after their conversion to Christ, something we saw in the letter to to Colossians that was not supposed to happen. Our unity in Christ was supposed to break down all barriers, but they were not allowing that to happen. They were divided over spiritual gifts, which is why Paul takes quite a bit of time in this letter to talk about the proper use of spiritual gifts within the body of Christ. And all of these are just examples. There are no doubt others, major and minor, that I could bring up as I leaf through this letter. In short, they were simply not living out the gospel in their relationships with one another. And again, that's something we talked about significantly in the letter of Colossians how the gospel is to impact our relationships in the home, in the church, and in society. This gospel that was meant to break down all barriers between people and therefore create unity among believers so that there were no distinctions. And yet they were allowing these distinctions to come between them. And so they were coming to the Lord's table 
this time of celebration of unity, and yet they were not one in Christ as they came. The divisions were still intact. It wasn't a community meal. It was just a picnic with everyone bringing whatever it is they wanted to bring. And so there were pockets of people all over the sanctuary, if you will, and some had brought a, a feast, and they were enjoying that feast. And others who, who did not have nearly as much because they could not afford it were eating much less and drinking much less. And so this symbol and celebration of unity had now divided the church, a clear case of the rich versus the poor in what was supposed to be a communal meal. And so Paul says this was never to be the intent. He writes to the church in, in Ephesus to the, to the, in the letter of Ephesians. He says, there is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Now, that does not mean when he says that there is one God who is in all, that everyone is saved. He's writing to believers, and so he says, yes, to all the believers, there is one God who is in all. But you notice as I read that verse how many times the word one was found there because Paul is talking about the unity that we share as believers in Jesus Christ. I mentioned to you last week and I remind you again this week that I will begin a new series next week on the doctrines that unite us as believers. That is those orthodox fundamental doctrines of our faith that we must hold in order to be orthodox Christians. Now, you can deny those doctrines if you want to, but in denying them, you are also proclaiming that you are no longer in line with the Orthodox faith. And the reason I'm bringing this series together is because there are so many divisions in our world, political, social, and yes, even within the church. We are taking sides about any and everything, drawing lines over anything and everything, and in the process, trying to determine who is and who is not a true believer based on those lines, or at least who is or is not worthy of our fellowship with them. And granted, there are some lines that need to be drawn, but not on every issue. But even on these issues that don't rise to the level of orthodoxy, which means we can agree to disagree on them, there needs to be grace and kindness, not hatred and anger. I say all that to say unity does not mean that we agree on everything. We are going to have disagreements, whether that be socially, politically, or religious. Unity does not mean uniformity. It does not mean that we agree on absolutely everything in the faith or in our lives, but it does mean that we can come together in unity as a body of believers, holding firmly together with one another those core doctrines while agreeing to disagree on other things. And we can do that because our relationship with Christ is much more important than everything else. And as a result, believers who come from different backgrounds can get along with one another within the church because we hold together that most important thing. There is an old saying that has been attributed to various people, and I'm not going to create division by stating who I think it belonged to. I'm just going to give the quote, and you can say it was said by whomever you want to. And here's the quote, in essentials, 
unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. In essentials, there is to be unity. Again, that's what we're going to be talking about for about the next nine weeks. In non-essentials, there can be liberty. That is, we can have convictions and our consciences can come to different conclusions about what we can and cannot do in non-essential things. But in all things, there is to be charity, which is another word for love. That is, regardless, we are to love one another. Paul begins this letter to Corinth after the initial greetings with these words. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. That's what the gospel is to do for us. The gospel is to bring us together under the lordship of Jesus Christ, and the Lord's Supper reminds us that we gather as a celebration of our unity under Jesus Christ. Secondly, not only is this a celebration of unity, but it is a celebration of deliverance. We don't get that primarily from this text, but we do get it from the overall meaning of this supper. As I mentioned at the outset, this was uh, certainly the core idea behind the Passover. The Israelites were celebrating year after year how God had miraculously delivered them from slavery in Egypt. They were delivered from the death of the firstborn. If you remember that last plague, that last plague that finally convinced Pharaoh to let the people go was the death of the firstborn. But for the Israelites, they were to kill a lamb and they were to take some of the blood from that lamb and put it over the doorpost of their homes. And that night when the death angel came, seeing the blood on their home, he would pass over that house and there would be no death inside. And that's how, obviously, the name of the celebration came to be the Passover. They were passed over from death. And then, as I mentioned, Jesus transformed this celebration from the Passover to what we call the Lord's Supper, or some call it communion, celebrating our deliverance from sin. We saw this in our study of Colossians, way back in the first chapter, where Paul basically summarized the gospel message. He said these words, He, that is Jesus, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So yes, we do celebrate a deliverance this morning. A deliverance from the domain of darkness. That is where we all once were. That is where by nature and by birth we belong. We were members of the domain of darkness, but God in Christ has miraculously delivered us from that domain and placed us in another location, that is the kingdom of his beloved son. And in that process, we have been redeemed. That's a word that means to buy back. We have been bought by the blood of Christ. We have been purchased. We are now owned by him. He has bought us with the price of his own blood so that we now belong to him and are part of his kingdom. And for that to happen, we must then be forgiven of our sins, something that we cannot accomplish on our own. Now, I realize that contemporary people don't like to think about sin. We like to think about more positive things. 
We don't mind talking about self-improvement or our need to do better. We don't mind talking about how we ought to try harder and make some resolutions and, and have a better year going forward. But the Bible is clear that sin is our major problem. It is sin that separates us from God at the very start of our lives. And it is sin that on our own we can do nothing about, which is why we need a miraculous deliverance. This is not just a matter of failing to live up to our potential. This is not just a matter of not doing a few things that we should have done or forsaking some things that we should have done. This is about sin in and through us, dominating our lives prior to coming to faith in Christ and having been delivered from that sin nature. So it's not something that we can just try harder. It's not something that we can just improve upon. It's not something that we need to be in the 75 percentile or higher in order to be made right with God. All very popular notions in American religion, but those are not the way to be right with God. It is deliverance and deliverance only that gains us acceptance with God. A miraculous deliverance from sin and death, even as the Israelites were delivered from bondage in, in Egypt, we must be delivered from bondage as well. And that is what salvation is all about. God delivering us from our sin through the death of Jesus Christ, his son, on our behalf. Now, frankly, so many of us are very nonchalant about all of this. We fail to recognize that this is indeed a true deliverance. Many of us have very little, if any, recollection of living in the domain of darkness. That's just terminology that we don't often use, especially if, like me, you were raised in a Christian home, you always grew up going to church. That's just all you've ever known, and that's the testimony of a lot of people in the South. And as a result, we, we never really think about the fact that we have been miraculously delivered from the domain of darkness. Others of you who do not have that testimony, instead you have a testimony of a life lived in rebellion, open rebellion against Christ, and as a result, you can remember that domain. And in doing that, you are likely then to have a greater appreciation for your salvation than someone like me whose testimony does not include necessarily that. Now, I'm not saying that we ought to go live in darkness so that we can have a greater appreciation of our salvation. It's a good thing if you were raised in a Christian home. It's a good thing if you always went to church growing up. But I'm saying regardless of your background, we ought to remember that we have been delivered from the domain of darkness. We have been redeemed from a life of sin, and that is what we come to celebrate this morning. We are celebrating not only our unity in Christ, but we are celebrating our deliverance from sin, and both of those are reasons to celebrate. Then thirdly, this is a celebration of remembrance Twice in both the, the bread and the cup, Jesus said, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me, verse 24 and verse 25. Now, this is not to imply that the disciples would forget. I mean, they had spent three years with him. The miracles that they had watched him perform, the teaching that they had heard, and the authority behind that voice everything that they had seen, they were not going to forget those things. And so Jesus does not primarily mean here a, a cognitive thought. It does include that, but he's not saying that the disciples were going to forget who he was or what he did. And I'm not saying the same of us either. 
You remember last week when we ended the book of Colossians, one of the last phrases Paul said, remember my chains. And we said when he wrote that, it was not primarily, don't forget I'm in prison. They knew that. But it was also a way of saying, don't forget my circumstances so that you can pray for me. We need to be reminded of what Jesus has done for us, not just the bare facts, but so that we can apply them regularly to our lives. Later this week, next Saturday, as a matter of fact, will be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. We will be reminded again that we ought not to forget what happened on that day. And I'm confident most of you can remember where you were and how you first heard of those events. I was at my office at my church, the last church I was at. I was on the phone with my cousin, who at the time was a pastor of a church in Pennsylvania, and we were discussing an upcoming mission trip uh, that we were going to take to his church. He was at his house, and he had the TV on in the background. And so while we're talking about the mission trip, he, he said to me, hold on just a minute, something's going on. There's a plane that has hit one of the Twin Towers. And then he said a few minutes later, the other tower has now been hit. And at that, we ended our conversation. I left my office. I went home. I turned on the television to find out what was going on. And then my wife, who had been out running some errands, came home. And there I am in the middle of the day. You remember it was mid-morning on that particular day. There I was mid-morning of a weekday at home where I shouldn't have been. And so she walked in and she said, why are you at home? And I remember saying to her, because someone has just declared war on the United States. And I, I, I assume that you remember those days as well. And so this coming Saturday, we're going to be reminded of that again. This past week, we have been reminded about the cost that soldiers give for our freedom. We are reminded by the death of 13 soldiers in Afghanistan that we need to remember our freedom and remember the price that is paid for that. And there has been all kinds of tributes all over social media for these 13 soldiers. And it's really come home to us because one of them obviously was a, a local kid from here in Gibbs. And so we've been reminded of these things. Similarly, Jesus gave his life for the cause of our freedom. As we've already seen, it's a celebration of deliverance, and therefore, it is a celebration that we must remember his sacrifice on our behalf. Our tendency, of course, is to think, I would never forget that. I'm a believer. I'm regular at coming to church. And again, I'm not saying that you would forget. What I am saying is it's possible not to remember, and those two things are not identical. Forgetting and not remembering are two different things. Because I, I'm confident you know the facts, and I'm confident those things would never slip from your mind. But what I'm asking this morning is, as we celebrate our deliverance and our unity, and as we remember what Christ has done for us, is it a remembrance that you apply to your life and a remembrance that changes everything about your life? You say, well, why do we need a ceremony? Why do we need an ordinance to use theological terms to remind us of what Jesus did? Again, because we are prone to forget. Not in the sense of no longer remembering the facts, but in the sense of the importance of those facts for our daily lives. We are so easily consumed by day-to-day -day activities. That's why there's going to be a host of professing believers who do not darken the doors of a church this morning. Because this is Labor Day weekend. 
I mean, we've got better things to do. We've got more important things to do than remember what Christ has done for us. And again, I'm not saying that's, that's what they're thinking as they're out doing other things, but is that not what they're doing? Putting other things ahead of their relationship with Christ? And that's just one example. It's very easy for us to do this on a day-to-day basis, to assume the gospel. And the generation that assumes the gospel is just a step away from confusing the gospel. And when we confuse the gospel, that is, we no longer understand what the gospel really is, then we've lost the gospel altogether. And frankly, I think that's where we are as a nation. As a Christian nation, we want to call it. I think we have long assumed the gospel. And I think now we are living in a time when we are confused about it. We don't even know what it is any longer. And therefore, we are losing what the gospel really is in our nation. And, when, and then when we do come to church, we say, well, I don't want to hear the gospel. I've already heard that. I want to hear something more important. I don't need a reminder of what Jesus did for me. What I need is for you to help me with my marriage this week. What I need is for you to help me with my parenting. I, I'm drowning in suffering and sorrow. What I need is a word from the Lord to help with that. And what I'm trying to help us understand is I'm giving you that. That is what the gospel is. It is the gospel applied that helps us have better marriages. It is the gospel applied that helps us to be better parents. It is the gospel applied that helps us be better church members and employees and employers. It is the gospel applied that transforms all of our lives. And it is the gospel that we are remembering this morning and we must never forget. That is one reason why we need a regular dose of the observance of the Lord's Supper. It brings us back to the basics, back to the core of what we believe, which should impact everything in our lives. Yes, we do go deeper. Don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying all we talk about is the basics. We do go deeper and dive into more theological issues. But even in diving deeper, we don't forget the basics. And so in just a few moments, when we do partake and remember who Christ is and what he's accomplished on our behalf, I want to ask you to set your other agendas aside. I want you to forget for just a few moments about whatever other plans you have for Labor Day weekend. And instead, I want our minds to go to the cross of Calvary. Here, there, the cries of abandonment between the Son and the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I want you to sense the emptiness of the disciples as their three years of following Christ has now led them to this moment where they are hopeless and helpless and they are lonely because their world has drastically changed. I want you to think about your own sin and the inability that you have to do anything about it. And yet God in Christ has delivered you. But we're not going to stay there. That's part of the equation, but we're not going to stay there because we're going to move now to the, to the fourth reason to celebrate. And that is that this is a celebration of anticipation. We not only look back to what Christ has done for us, but the text here says very clearly, as often as you do this, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So it is not just looking back at our deliverance but it is looking forward in anticipation to when Christ is coming again and we will be united with him and live with him forever. And we long for that day. We anticipate that day. 
when Jesus Christ completes our salvation by bringing us home to be with him. Something he promised on multiple occasions. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again to receive you unto myself that where I am there you may be also. So what we are doing this morning together as Christians has been done in a, in a variety of manners ever since the day Jesus transformed the Passover meal. And every time it's been done rightly, it is an acknowledgement of our desire to celebrate with him someday. And the fact that we believe he is coming back to receive us. So this is an, anticip an anticipatory meal, prefiguring what is to come when we feast with him in heaven. The book of Revelation, which you've briefly studied in Sunday school over the last few weeks, calls this the marriage supper of the Lamb and says, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Your participation this morning anticipates the day that we will sit down in celebration with the Lord Jesus Christ. And your participation this morning says you believe you are invited because you have been delivered, you have been redeemed, and you have been forgiven. This is not merely a ritual to be performed. This is not an ordinance that we do out of tradition. This is a serious celebration of who Christ is and who, there we for, and who therefore we are in him. And that is why Paul says in our text that prior to, we must examine ourselves. Now hear me rightly. It doesn't mean you have to be perfect. Everything about this supper says we're not perfect. That's the reason we're celebrating this supper. If we're perfect, we don't need the Lord's Supper. So examining ourselves doesn't mean that you have to be sinless. None of us are. It simply means that we are looking into our hearts to make sure there's no obvious and rebellious sin there. And if there is, that we ask Christ to forgive us. And then we partake. And here at this church, we invite any believer to participate. You do not have to be a member of this church, but you do have to be a member of the universal church. That is, you have to be a believer in Jesus Christ. And so we invite you to partake alongside with us in a spirit of unity, rejoicing in our salvation. So I'm going to pause for a minute and pray, give you an opportunity to pray, and then we will partake. Let's pray. Father, we pause now to allow your spirit to examine our hearts, to see if there's any sin there that needs to be repented of, even, even right now in these very moments. That we would then rejoice in the forgiveness that you provide knowing that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we come this morning knowing that we are not righteous, that we are only righteous because you have declared us to be so, but in our thoughts and in our actions, we are far from it, and so we continually need you. And as we are reminded this morning of your body, which was broken for us, May we set aside any other thought just for a few moments 
and go back to that hill called Calvary and see there your body crucified for us. May we feel ever so briefly the hopelessness and the emptiness but then take our eyes and our minds to that Sunday morning and the tomb is empty and see the joy of the disciples as they are reunited with you and know that you are alive. Lord, help us to remember all that you've done for us in delivering us from sin, redeeming us at the price of your blood, that we might be forgiven and be with you forever. May we partake this morning, even as you said, in remembrance of you. Is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Obviously, we're doing this a little different than we have. Hopefully, we can get back to pre-COVID Lord's Supper at some point. But right now, we have these. And so, I invite you to take the part that has the piece of bread in there and take that out. We know that this is not literally the body of Jesus. It is symbolic of that. But Jesus said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Take, eat. And then you can flip it over, take off the other lid, where we find the symbolism of the blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. And so we have here a, a cup. We know it's juice, but it is symbolic of the blood of Christ. And again, he says, when you take the blood, do this in remembrance of me. Let's pray once again. Father, we do thank you for your body, for your blood, broken and shed for us, that we might be forgiven. Help us to leave this place rejoicing in this very thing, not just for an hour or two, but that we may live our lives in joy because of who you are and what you've done for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation.